if you have to define yourself and who you are and rally a crowd by by gathering them against an object or an enemy, and I described this in I think the first couple of chapters of the book, then you then once that runs out, you've got to find a new enemy because that energy doesn't have anything substantive out of which to live life and, and it will run out. The enemy will kind of have a shelf life and then you'll have to invent a whole new enemy to keep the machine going. And, you know, we have a president in office right now who basically lives this way every day. But it's very signifying as to kind of the bad habits we've gotten into as far as uh, the church and its formation as a people in the world. Hey friends, welcome back. It's another week. We did it. I usually steer away from politics and any conversation like that because it is so charged and we're already talking about faith. I would rather not talk about two charged topics, but uh, the guest at hand that you will hear in a moment wrote a book that just intersects the two beautifully. And I think for those listening, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, you don't know what day this is, but uh, you know, tomorrow will be September 5th, and I'm going to go ahead and send out David's book uh, to the level of Patreon supporters that get books. I, I think this book is fantastic, and I can't wait for you all to get it. And so if you are not a Patreon supporter, there's some big things happening there. Click the button and do it. Appreciate every single thing, every, every, every single one of you. There aren't the adequate words to express how true that is. It's, uh, this show continues to grow at a pace that blows my mind. And uh, without y'all, that's just not, it's just not a thing that could happen. You know, another thing that you could do if you can't do that, because I know not everybody can, is you could just click the button, you know, in iTunes or your podcast app of choice, and you could just rate the show, uh, type in a little comment there and say, you know, Seth is awful at this, or I really enjoyed this, or you can say whatever you want. Just say something. I read those and uh, some of them I love. Some of them make me laugh. Others I won't talk about. So one of my favorite songs, uh, I listen to it frequently, quite frequently actually, is from Gungor, and it's called Us For Them, and I love that play on words. And there is a lyric in there towards the end, you know, that says, you know, prepare the way of the Lord, wielding mercy like a sword. You know, every mountaintop will be made low. He holds the earth like dust, and his judgment is love. His judgment is love. And then it says, we will not fight their wars. We will not fall in line because if it's us or them, it's us for them. We reject the binary either or. Like It's just us for them. And so David's book is titled, you know, The Church of Us Versus Them. And I think that that is so often the rhetoric that permeates every single conversation, be it religious or non-religious. It's just always my side versus your side. Somebody must lose. There's no discernment, there's no patience, there's just finger pointing. And I am as guilty as the next person. I love this conversation. I love this book. I'm sending it to some of you. And if you're not among that list, get the book. Like it is very, it's very good. And so here we go. Uh, no more belaboring the point. Here's a conversation that I had with David E. Fitch about freedom from a faith that feeds on making enemies. David E. Fitch, and I'm partial to the E. I also have an E. Mine's Edward. I don't know what yours is, but welcome to the show, man. I'm excited you're here. Good to be here, and I won't tell you what my E is because I don't want anybody to make fun of me <laughs> in the airways. That's <laughs> but it's Elmer. So you said you are you making that up, or that's the real name? No, that is my real uh, middle name, and it's a sacred name in my family. I like it. it. Back to my uh, grandfather. Yeah. 
Yeah, I am. I am similar. So it's it's got huge lineage in my family. I am with you. Both of my names are grandparents further up down the line. So I'm with you. And we've done the same thing with my son. Like he's his middle name is named after grandfather and you know, et cetera. So yeah, no, I definitely, why would I make fun of your name? Like you had any choice in that <laughs> and people well, that would do that. I'm not are, saying it'd be you, but it would get back to me somehow. <laughs> uh, you know, I named my son, Elmer, Elmer, Max bitch. And my wife said, well, we'll go with the Elmer, but nobody can actually call him Elmer. Uh, the only persons that can know about Elmer is you and me. And, and, so that's kind of the way, you know, the, the Elmer kind of, he's, his first name is Elmer, but nobody calls him Elmer hmm. and he doesn't want anybody to know his first name is Elmer. Can you imagine this? Huh? Well, he will now if anybody yeah. sees him. So anyway, hopefully this won't get back to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is going to be, so my favorite conversations are the ones that I laugh a lot and we're already doing that. So we're well on our way to making this a, a good one. Um, what would you want people to know about you, David? Like what is kind of your story? Like what makes you, you? Uh, well, uh, I, you know, most people know me cause I'm a theologian and I've written books, but the real story is I was a struggling guy coming out of a seminary that got a job as a stockbroker, rose to the heights of, of, uh, of wall streets um you know uh well-off people i did okay in other words in like six years and then i had i tell people i got saved saved for real the second time and um that's when i began a journey of studying uh, for a phd and running a business and and leading a church and trying to sort out life uh, in the big city, if I can put it that way. And, and so I, uh, I didn't come at, uh, being an academic by like choosing to be an academic. I actually, I actually, uh, went through all kinds of stuff, searching, struggling, going through a PhD, leading a church, writing a book. And then I was asked to take an academic position. And I think I, I want people to know I'm a pastor and I've gone through most, I've gone through stuff that, that none uh, righteous people that grew up living a perfect life have gone through. Does that make sense? Yeah. Although, I mean, I can half relate to that being in the financial, I didn't know you were in the financial world. I like that. Uh, cause I often tell people if I could actually make the amount of money that I need to make and do this full time. And so if you're listening, somebody make that happen. Um, I would, I get so much fulfillment out of doing this. I read so many new ideas and so I am envious uh, that you did it, you know, that, it, that you've done it. Not that I'm not, I don't like banking. I do like it, but I love this, if that makes well, sense. Well, I, uh, I wouldn't say I've done it. I'm, I, you know, Stanley Harawas uh, starts off the, the first line of his uh, autobiography, uh, Hannah's Child, by saying, I did not intend to be Stanley Harawas. I did not intend, really. Uh, for my life to develop the way it did. Uh, it was just like submitting faithfully to what God had for me. And if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have done it differently. But but actually, God works in and through all things uh, to achieve and accomplish his purposes. So that's the way it turned out. And probably, who knows, if you stay faithful day in, day out to your job and this work, who knows where God's going to take you. That's a message for anybody, not just this old guy talking on a, on a podcast. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, who does know? I mean, if you'd asked me five years ago if I would be sitting right here at the moment, I would have been like, yeah, probably not. Nobody cares what this idiot has to say. And I would still think that that's probably true, but I think people care for genuine conversations, which leads me to what you've written. So the book that you have most recently written, I think it came out in what? Is it July? Is that when it came out? Right. July. Yeah. And so I apologize. I think I've had it since then. And I've just been so, because July, the summer months for me, I've got three small kids are consuming. Like consuming is not the applicable adjective. Like it is just sucks right. the life out of, out of everything. It's fun, but it is, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're all under the age of 10 and it is consuming. Wow. Yeah. So I read your book a while back and then I refreshed on it a little bit before talking today and I, and I absolutely like this book. And so when you say the church of us versus them, I, I wanted to start with that. Like, who is us and who is them? Yeah, well, uh, it starts with the church. Uh, 
every, uh, you know, it just starts with a general description of churches in the United States of America and how we started, uh, uh, you know, defining ourselves, self-understanding who we are by who we're not. Uh, And so churches kind of developed this mentality, this competitive mentality, this us versus them mentality, even within the church. So, you know, John MacArthur might define him and who he is over against the charismatics or over against the social justice people, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of mentality kind of spreads the progressives against the conservatives, Mm -hmm. the affirming LGBTQ against the not affirming. And we have all these us versus them definitions of who we are as Christians, but it doesn't stop there. It actually becomes the, uh, def- it becomes the DNA of how we relate to the world. And so we can't get, we, we define ourselves over against this person or that person. Uh, it's kind of like a disease. It, it's kind of like an ideological way of being that has infested how we gather as a people. And my argument or my a plea in the church of us versus them is no, this is not who and who Jesus is. This is not the people of God in Christ. This is not who we're called to be. Let's get out of this ideological existence so we can be the people of God for the world and for his mission in the world. Well, I mean, getting to John MacArthur, he keeps switching to them because he just gets mad at, well, I'm not that old. I'm almost, I'm, you know, I'm, upper upper mid 30s there we go um but in my just limited history like he just yells at somebody different every couple years he finds a new them uh, which seems like a lot of energy wasted like you should really just target somebody and if you're going to act that way you know beat them into submission i guess if that's the mindset but he seems to jump around from who is the them um which seems just like a lot of wasted energy and, and people are going to accuse me of like uh, defining myself over against John MacArthur. And there's always those uh, kind of, you know, uh, double uh, negative things that happen and we can't get out of the spiral. But just looking uh, at Dr. MacArthur and what goes on, it kind of illustrates a principle of the way ideology works. If you have to define yourself and who you are and rally a crowd by by gathering them against an object or an enemy and i described this in i think the first couple of chapters of mm-hmm. the book then you then once that runs out you've got to find a new enemy because that energy doesn't have anything substantive out of which to live life and, and it will run out the enemy will kind of have a shelf life and then you'll have to invent a whole new enemy to keep the machine going and you know we have a president in office right now who basically lives this way every day but it's very signifying as to kind of the bad habits we've gotten into as far as uh, the church and its formation as a people in the world i want to talk a bit about so i usually intentionally do not talk politics but i don't see a way to talk about this conversation without government and politics like forefront. And so I just want to, I just want to get a few things out of the way. I am not a fan of the president and those that know me know that. Um, and so anything that I say to, to talk badly about our government is really from a, a heart of, I really wish that it would work because I live here and I need it to work and my kids yeah. live here and I need it to work. Um, and so does everybody listening and anyone that you share it with. One of the things that annoys me, and I I argue all the time, David, about how we are not a Christian nation, how we've never been one. Um, and it's, I find myself when I do that, though, I oftentimes feel like I'm creating a new us versus them. And it's not progressive versus, that's not what I'm trying to say. I feel like it's those that know history and those that don't. So how would you recommend someone have a conversation of an us versus them, specifically when it comes to like politics, as we're entering into the primary season, um, you know, and at, at, at recording, you know, uh, uh, the Senator, uh, what is it from you? No, Gillibrand, I think that's who it is, you know, just dropped out of the race. And so that will continue to go. And as minds coalesce, the us's and then them's are going to get bigger, be that the church 
or be that the party of choice. So how do you enter into a conversation with someone and even find a level a level playing field to begin a conversation in actual authentic like purpose? What ideology does is uh, it creates a cause and it creates promises around that cause that are impossible to be fulfilled. And then it aligns, it kind of builds your identity around uh, being against this enemy in this cause. And what happens is you never, it takes you out of the actual discerning process of any real issue on the ground. This is what is so damaging about ideology. We, we extract beliefs or discernments out of their context, out of actual discipleship, people's lives, and we turn them into a banner. I call it a banner in the book. And then we rally people using the banner against an enemy. And uh, we never get to actually discerning anything. We do this in sexuality, right? We're either affirming or not affirming, and we go into these big culture wars and rallying people to become so emotional. Our identity gets so tied into it. We actually never get to actually talking to anybody who's engaged in, and we're all, as far as I know, engaged in sexuality issues of multiple complexities, but we never actually talk about or get to discerning these in these places of safety under the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. No, we never get to that. We just stay above it all in these arguments for or against. Now, this is what happens with politics. We, we create this imaginary Christian nation as a cause to get behind, but nobody really believes if we get all this legislation put in and all these uh, Supreme Court justices put in, all of a sudden we're going to have a nation that looks more Christian. Actually, that kind of I've shown in the book how that works against the mm-hmm. idea of, of being more Christian. So what we do is we just get distracted. And I want to say, no, let's actually work on the ground locally uh, on the issues that are so important politically that we have to work out. You know, whether it be taxes, whether it be um, um, legislation for how we take care of our health care problems or whatever it might be. Let's start working it on the ground in groups of people. You know, that's what the word ecclesia, the Greek word that Paul, the apostle, used for church that came off the Septuagint uh, that referred to the people of Israel. But actually, it was it was actually a word that meant the political organizing locally of every Greek little state or uh, city or village or town. And, and what Paul was saying is the church does the work of organizing people for God's kingdom in Christ. Even though those people don't know they're under his rule yet, we're going to discern it here first. And then we're going to proclaim the good news to other people. And I I just, I don't know if that was too long and and (laughs) explanation, but what I'm really trying to say is let's start local and let's stay on the ground and discern these issues locally, whether it be who should I vote for, whether it be how do we deal with taxes, whether it be how do we deal with the injustices of racism in this town, whatever it might be, let's, let's deal with it locally, and then let's work out solutions together as a people of God, then let's take them to the town hall village meeting, then let's take them to the state. You know, uh, Canada's national health care system started in the in a small city in Saskatchewan, Canada, uh, under the leadership of a Baptist pastor named Tommy Douglas, hmm. and the revolution began. It didn't start in Ottawa House of Parliament. It started in a little town with a guy named Tommy Douglas. Yeah, I remember. I forget what book it was. It's one of the first people I talked to. A uh, Benjamin Corey. I was reading a lot about you know back in like you know seventeen eighteen hundreds. Like some of the church did some beautiful work because they weren't really attached at the hip to making enemies or naming enemies, just actually maybe loving people, caring for people. And they did a lot. Like they would start libraries, start schools, start churches, start, um, you know, the Red Cross, start Salvation Army. And I didn't know that about Canada, but that was back when the church, you know, I think, acted like one as opposed to a, a, well, social, you- a social club with money influence. Yes, I, I think I give the example of how the civil rights movement happened. It didn't happen through Lyndon Baines Johnson and the administration in the White House. It happened 
if you read Charles Marsh's book, uh, Beloved Community, all, all the history is kind of sketched out of, of the Jim Crow South and how these uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee meetings started to happen locally in various colleges, campuses, towns, villages. What they really were were prayer meetings where people, white and black, gathered together around tables and started praying and upsetting the Jim Crow South. And from that came the civil rights movement. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we must understand, let's go local. That's all I'm saying. Uh, let's, uh, because if we just get caught up in these ideological struggles about what does it mean to be a Christian nation, which really we don't, it really doesn't mean anything. We don't really know what it means. Like, what would it mean? For the United States to be a Christian nation, can somebody please tell me that? I don't think we know, and I don't think it's possible uh, to even, uh, you know, have a so-called Christian nation at this point in time. No, what we need to do is go local and spread the gospel and the justice of Jesus Christ into every nook and cranny where we do, where we live and let God take care of how he's going to reign the world. Yeah, I agree, because yeah, I don't think we can have a Christian nation because most Christians don't agree on simple things, like, say, the Bible. Um, or, or So until there's that, I don't see how you could have a Christian nation, because that's that's why we have all these different... Well, one of the reasons we have all these different denominations. One more thing on Christian nation. I've heard you either speak, or maybe I read it, but I've read a lot lately. Um, but I've heard you talk about you know the pre- and post-World War II Germany and how it was the preeminent Christian nation, if there ever there was one. You've got all these Lutheran ministers and kind of how that morphed into what it became. And a lot of that, I remember when I when I saw it, I was like, this is, I didn't have any of that context. I wonder if you could go into a bit of that here, because I feel like I'm probably not the only one, uh, because I know in the school systems I went to, we don't really talk about any things that aren't America. And so it's hard to make those correlations. Yeah, well... You know, the fact of the matter was uh, Germany, by uh, legislation, was a Christian nation. Uh, half, well, a third Catholic, two-thirds Lutheran, but it was all under the German church uh, structure uh, where you all pay taxes. So anyways, uh, uh, the real question, I mean, I'm still studying it to this day. I was happened to be in Berlin last summer, stunned by just the history that that country is living and grieving over and repenting of and how it all happened. But, you know, all you have to do is study uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, uh, the, and the German church movement and the Barman Declaration to see how by the time the church woke up, it was too late. And, it was, and the, church, the German church had, you know, I, uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the things it was famous. Well, I don't know how famous this is, but when I read it, it became famous to me. He said the reason why 17,000 Lutheran pastors said how was for one reason and can summarize their pensions. Okay, so when money and power and everything gets loaded up into the structure, uh, we end up succumbing. And I think the same power is going on today with so many white evangelicals in the South uh, 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 aligning themselves with uh, a very non-Christian, almost disgusting administration. It's mind-boggling how the ideology has gotten a hold of us. So I think we need to study how and when things happened in Germany. There's a lot of people who poo-poo that idea. Oh, this is not Germany. But yet there are things to learn from what happened there. Mm. Uh, and how we became, uh, I have this, these two lectures I'm, I'm writing right now, uh, in the process to deliver in uh, California in February, uh, where I say the problem isn't that we're on the wrong side of history. The problem is that we're on the wrong side of power. You know, the argument is get on the right side of history and get ahead of things. Actually, every time we've been on the wrong side of power, things have gone very wrong. God works among the poor, the hurting, the broken, the marginalized, because his power doesn't operate the way the world's power does. And he changes things where his power space is made open for. So anyways, all these things we can study through the German church problem. Uh, and, you know, I'd start with, uh, I'd read uh, Reggie Williams, uh, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. Hmm. Uh, I love that book in terms of understanding how we can get so sucked up into white nationalism and we're just not seeing this is not the gospel this is not jesus 
I don't know anything about that book, but I'm going to fix that. I mean, today. So you talked, you talked there, and and there's a reason I asked that question. I hope that you'd go there, and so um, that's why you're a professional and I am not. So you talked about you know the way that you know we have a love affair with power and evangelicalism, and I struggle with that word. I struggle to call myself an evangelical because it means so many other things that have nothing to do with the gospel, but that's a slightly different topic. But you've got a section in a chapter on let's make America Christian again that's titled, and the reason it, it caught me is I went to Liberty, and so I'm very attuned to Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. And so you say Jerry Falwell or Jim Wallace, what's the difference? So what is the difference? For those that haven't read the book, like what are you saying there? I'm an Anabaptist. Most people know I'm a neo-Anabaptist. Uh, I have learned at the feet of Stanley Hauerwas, many other neo-Anabaptists. It, it just, I, I tell people, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, you know, was the means by which I became a Christian again. He led me into understanding the Bible. And one, of the, one of the things about Anabaptism is we realize that God's power in and through Jesus Christ, and I do believe it's power. But it is just so different from the coercion, usurping, force, violent power of the world. And by violence, I just don't mean physical violence or shooting somebody with a gun, although that is a very visceral manifestation of the same dynamic. I mean all forms of force, all forms of coercion, all forms of me over you getting you to do something uh, that I want you to do in the name of an agenda or some some purpose that I have decided or become part of. So, anyways, the whole point here is is that there's two kinds of power. Uh, another distinction in the theological world is preservatory power. Uh, Luther called that the left hand of the government and the right hand, uh, or is redemptive power. And what I'm trying to say here is is that. We need to understand that Jim Wallace, uh, who was an Anabaptist, suddenly started writing books like God's Politics, and we've got to do things through the government. And we got, and yet he had this. He had a biblically, I think he called it the Isaiah platform in that book, and and he's got a very biblically, well argued biblical ethic that he wants the government to enforce. Very similar to Jerry Falwell, of course, in the Moral Majority, although. Uh, both of they both had very different senses of what 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 that ethic and the emphasis within that ethic should be. They both took the same means, which is let's get the government to do the bidding of God. And what I want to say is, government can do some things, but it's very limited. So go ahead and vote and go ahead and work for government, but it's going to be very limited. The redemptive work of what God wants to do in our culture can come only in and through the church, through the power and the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That may sound very individualistic because that's the way evangelicals have already said it. I believe it's very social. I think God wants to work in and through the neighborhoods and the places of worldly power for his purposes through his presence and through the way he works in the world. Does that make sense? Can you clarify for me everything I just said? <laughs> just read the book. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why I see Jim Wallace and Jerry Falwell as two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Em employing worldly power to accomplish their biblical agendas, even though their biblical agendas are quite different. I don't think there's a way to read the Bible. Or I think it's really hard to read the Bible and not uh, read looking for the God that you're trying to find. And I don't know that I'm saying that well. And But then you take that as ammunition. And so I want to backtrack back to the beginning of the book. You talk about people using the Bible as a blunt instrument. And that phrasing is used often. And so I'd like to turn the question a bit. How would you, you know, advise, because you said, you know, you're a pastor. And I mean, obviously you're training pastors well. You're, you're an academic. And so in your experience, how would you train pastors to, instead of using the Bible as a blunt instrument, to use it as a precise one, because I think there is a purpose for how scripture can sometimes cut down what doesn't need to be there. So how would we instead frame using scripture, using scripture is a bad way to say that, you know, letting scripture use us as a precise instrument, as opposed to just a God hates gays, you know, God only likes Republicans, uh, you know, or whatever the blunt, whatever the blunt thing is. Yeah. Well, we have to deconstruct. Uh, I'm going to use a, couple of big words here perfect 
I'm going to deconstruct the epistemology. I think we've had epistemology the way we know something. We have said uh, the Bible is inerrant. Every word is God breathed. Perspicuous is a word the reforms reformers have used. It is eminently clear. All I have to do is my homework, and I get to the right meaning. Mm. But we individualized that. The fact of the matter is that worked in Christendom, Euro Christendom, where there was already a consensus on what all the text means. Now go to your average church meeting or go to a pick a, a commentary off your library wall and you'll find four or five meanings for every text, for every verse. Well, how do we deal with that? You know, so so the first thing I when we when we meet over an issue, it's a communal work of God by His Holy Spirit. Acts chapter fifteen, I think it is. You know, they got together. They asked, "What does this mean?" They searched the Scripture. They said, "We are seeing the Holy Spirit at work in Gentile believers." What does this mean? And then what are the demands? And then they say, "It's it is good." Then then uh, I believe James wrote that. Uh, that note, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to do A, B, and C. You know, that's the process of how we gather together to interpret Scripture on things that we don't agree on. And so uh, when we had a couple of people, wonderful people, disagree with our church on how uh, we were affirming women in ministry, we all got together, all those who were uh, committed to this issue, uh, some were even uh, offended that we would open up the discussion again uh, of women in ministry. Uh, but we first deconstructed what scripture is. We all bring agendas here. We're submitting them to the work of the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to look at verses and submit one to another and listen carefully. We're going to pray. And we're going to open space for God to speak. And we're going to hear all sides. And we'll listen to the teachers, but we'll also listen to the pastors and the evangelists and the other gifted people in our midst. And you know, after like seven weeks of going through the texts and listening to one another, and we all came to some conclusions. We wrote some conclusions on the big whiteboard or whatever you call that thing that we had. Uh, we didn't have everybody agree. Like we take a one to five assessment where you, uh, one, Satan's at work in this affirmation. I cannot agree. Five, I agree wholeheartedly. Four, I have some reservations, but I can follow this. We had no threes, twos, or ones. We had all fives and three fours. But even the ones who couldn't completely agree said, I can trust what the Holy Spirit is doing in this church and where he's leading us through the the, the teaching and submitting to scripture on this issue. So everybody, everybody was met in one way or another and came to a coalescence as to where God was taking us in relation to this issue. I wish we could do that kind of thing with, uh, it takes some training. We gotta train people how to submit to one another in reading scripture. But I wish we could do that in regard to sexuality. I wish we could do that in regard to uh, all the all the problems we have in our towns and villages and families, even over issues of finances, you know, let's listen to Scripture, listen to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, submit to one another, and then say it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that He is leading us to do this. So I want to push on that a little bit because uh, the way that my brain works, um, I can see, so say I'm out here in central Virginia and the people that I'm involved with, whatever the community is, however many hundreds or thousands of us are, I come to a submission to one another that this is the way that scripture is viewed. And then someone in say, I don't know, let's say somewhere in Iowa. I don't even know a town in Iowa. Um, that's sad, whatever, a, a town in a, in a different in a different state, that they come to the opposing view. So then how did those two sects come together and figure out how to lower the banner? I'll use a descriptor that you use when they don't agree. 
Like, how do those two, after they've come to a massive consensus between the two, which is amazing if it happens because people are letting go of power, which is one of the most Christ-like things I think you can do, and it's hard to do. So how do you do it when, you know, across our continent or across the ocean, the two opposing sides come into clash? Like, just in the past few years, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the Methodist Church on homosexuality, but you also have the Methodist Church on women in ministry. And I believe, like, the Mennonite Church is coming up for a vote on that in the next little bit. And the uh, the the covenant, what is it called? The Evangelical Covenant Church is coming up for it again, and I think they just decided to table it because nobody could figure out how to talk about it. So what happens for those that do talk about it? You know, they've made a decision, and it disagrees with another massive body that has also figured out how to submit one another, and they've made a decision. How do you nuance those two? In regard to denominational structures... Uh, you know, I probably shouldn't like try to give a single answer to all the problems that we have uh, across all denominations. But if I were a denominational president, I would charge all the issues that we cannot agree on. I would give the local churches power, discern this locally and give some freedom uh, in the various churches to discern things locally but we will find out uh where god is working and where he's leading and where he's not the fruit will become apparent but i i think the real revolutions and things that shape our our churches start locally i think the problem with the united methodists is they tried to enforce a single unilateral decision from the top down across multiple contextual boundaries. I don't even think American white people in the United Methodist Church understood that the when the Africans were saying the word sexuality, they did not mean the same thing that Americans mean when they say sexuality. I, I could go off on a riff on that, mm-hmm. but the fact is power structures of denominations trying to enforce a singular decision top down through a vote is a recipe for disaster because it employs worldly power, not the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we need to start locally. Give it 10 to 15 years and a consensus. Time out real quick. So you'll notice there, and the audio just went crazy. I don't know what happened to the internet. Um, I'm going to blame it on nobody. So what we did was I decided to go old school, went ahead and got David's phone number. So I apologize for this brief interruption. Here we go. We'll do the rest a little bit more old school. Back to it. Dave Fitcher. There we go. We'll finish it old school. So, um, yeah. So, so to recap that, because some of it cut in and out. So basically, where you can't agree, give the local church autonomy to make that decision for what works best in the community that they're in. Yeah, yeah. And no, I wouldn't say autonomy. But uh, I wouldn't call it autonomy because we're all linked. But uh, what it means is we're giving freedom to open space for those conversations and discernments locally on the ground. Listen to people. Listen to scripture. Uh, give if I were denominations, I'd give some you know some simple directives, some handouts, some directions, and, and study scripture together locally. And uh, I do believe. Uh, I do believe where there's not consensus, I do believe over time, the fruit will be born and become clear and eventual consensus will happen. I mean, isn't this the way, you know, I mean, I don't want to idealize or romanticize the great councils of the third and fourth and fifth century because there was actually a lot of Constantinian power being wielded around uh, at Nicaea and elsewhere. But, you know, uh, basically things were happening on the ground in various regions of the church, and they came together to discern and ask what's happening over there, what's happening over here, and how does this make sense, and what can we learn from each other in terms of assembling a, a unifying document? And I think that's what we need to do again. Um, so I'm glad that you went there. For those that haven't bought David's book, go and do so, because this entire episode, we have bounced around themes that are in an appendix at the back. At least that's what I'm hearing, David. And if I'm mishearing that wrong, you just tell me. But most people don't read past the last chapter. And so you have two appendixes, appendices, whatever yeah. the word is. Yeah. And so I'm going to read those out if that's all right with you. So you know, the first thing you talk about, sure. you know, for tactics for engagement, you know, where we're opening space for the antagonisms is 
tell a story about a real person and then ask how do we discern this issue, which is what you know you basically just broke down. Make observations and ask questions that reveal the contradictions at work, which I really like because that forces me to have to listen to you. Like I have to hear what you're saying uh, because I have to ask questions about the contradiction as opposed to saying you're, yeah. you're stupid. How do you, of course you read it wrong. <laughs> you, I mean, that's, uh, that, of course you're from, you know, you're from, you're from wherever you're from. That's, Y'all are stupid over there. Um, you know, and then uh, three, don't humiliate or defeat the other person, which is literally what I just did. Uh, four, start with an agreement. <laughs> <laughs> four, start an agreement from what we have in common. And I think that is perfect. Like find what, I, it was somebody I spoke with, Bonnie Christian, that had said, you know, con- concentric circles. Like we don't agree about a lot of dogma, but that dogma doesn't matter as much as what we do agree on. And that's Jesus. And so let's focus on that and then branch out from there. And then lastly, you know, make a proposal in the spirit of mutual submission. And I just love those five things. And I wonder what the church would maybe look like in the future if we actually did that. And so that leads me to my final question. Uh, You know, I am a millennial. I'm one of the first of the generations of millennials, barely a millennial, but I relate a lot to them. And so people in my age demographic are like jettisoning as quickly as possible from the church because I'm so sick and tired of it. Just all of it, capital I, capital T, just all of it. And so for pastors listening, how can they use those five things that I just very briefly read out to create a place or a new type of church that will be something that both I and my children will exist in? Because I am terrified that if, I, I honestly am terrified that whatever version of the American church exists, it won't be that. Um, I don't know what it will be, but I know if it looks anything like it does now, it will just get more and more unhealthy. So how can we take those five things and create a better, like a better church that millennials are happy to go to? Uh, because let's be frank, they're the biggest population in, in not only this country, most countries. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, we're in a, a hell of a mess right now. Uh, you know, uh, for years, especially if you're a white old guy, uh, old defined as 50 and over. Uh, you, you grew up in a time when white Christians were pretty much in charge and even in charge in a way of the culture. And that's all like flittering away. And those who are out of those time frames, but even those who've been raised by people who were used to that, we, we want to hold on and we're used to just arguing and holding on to our power. And when that's no longer there, we, we now are in a space of mission and we just have to operate totally differently. We can't assume anything. We can't actually assume there's any power to be granted. And so we must become organizers of the kingdom. And the way we organize is by doing those things you just like described in the appendix, but really that run throughout the whole book. I've written this book to try to help people to understand the dynamics that are at work ideologically that come from, you know, Christendom wanting to hold on to its power and it's not going to work. And so we have to give up the power and we have to trust the power at work in Christ, wherever we gather in his name. And so I'll summarize I'll summarize those tactics you just uh, set off the appendix with the story of Jesus uh, and the adulteress. And, you you know, uh, in John chapter 8, uh, the adulteress is put into uh, uh, kind of the middle of or before everybody as an object of disdain, an enemy. And so often pastors, churches get caught up in, in that, that issue. We have an enemy. And by the way, the world just presents us with these terms all the time, because this is the way the world operates apart from God. Well, we don't want to do that. We don't, nobody is an enemy. Enemies might be revealed, but we don't make enemies. And it's not our job to call out the enemy. Instead, uh, you know, um, um, so, um, Okay, where was it? My son just walked in. Uh, you said, uh, you said, uh, <laughs> you said, enemies might be revealed, but we don't make enemies. <laughs> Hi, yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, hey, Elmer, uh, how are you doing? 
<laughs> don't call him. <laughs> he didn't hear that. <laughs> nothing, nothing. Go, go. I, I, I gotta finish this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> okay. Anyways, let's get back on task here. Yeah, the adulteress is being made into an object of disdain, the enemy. We must overcome that. By, you know, uh, whenever we're in the middle of these arguments or tempted to enter into these antagonisms, I call them, tell a real story about a real person or ask the person their story. And uh, when the real facts come out and the issues come out, it's hard to make an enemy out of that person. But instead, God wants to work in and through that person. Uh, Jesus, you know, makes observations and starts with agreements. Uh, basically, when he says, okay, yeah. If you you are perfect, yeah, I agree with the law. The law has become the ideology, the banner in this case. When the Pharisees ask Jesus, what shall we do, stoner, according to the law? And they're trying to turn the law into a banner, and Jesus resists that. And he just says, frankly, does something to reveal the contradiction in their lives by finding a point of agreement. And he says something like, uh, yeah, you, you are perfect. Throw the first stone. Mm. And then, of course, they're able to see the contradiction, and they all start walking away. And that clear space for Jesus to be present to the adulteress and say you are forgiven, say you are loved, and now go and work out your salvation. Go and sin no more. We, the church, need to be Jesus in clearing the antagonisms, frittering them, allowing them to fritter away, because God can't work in in these antagonistic environments. Conflict is one thing. Turning them into antagonism is another thing. And we must be present to one another in the conflicts, allow the antagonism to go away, clear space for God to work his reconciliation and healing in and through Jesus Christ. That's my challenge. That's the call of the church to be this kind of people in our culture today. This is what God wants to do, and he will raise up a new people. And millennials and everybody else that's so aggravated, pissed off, and wants to walk away from church will be lining up to become part of this hmm. uh, this new movement of God in our culture, I believe. Yeah, I hope so. Point people in the right place, David. Where do they go? Where do they uh, either yell at you if they disagree so that we can find that common ground? Uh, or where, well, hopefully that's not what happens. Where do they go to interact with you? Uh, get the book, which I'm sure is available everywhere that books are available. But ha- where would you point people to? I have a lively conversation that goes on on my Facebook page, David Fitch, uh, Fitchest at, at Facebook. You can't become my friend because I don't have any space and I won't go to a public page. But followers, just follow me and you'll get in on all the conversations. I have a Twitter page, which is pretty active, Fitchest, F-I-T-C-H-E-S-T. Um, and you can buy the book, of course, at Amazon, in your local bookstore uh, or or wherever you find books. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on, David. I've, I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Good to be with you, man. And I hope to meet you along the way there in Virginia. Uh, keep up the good work. Will do. The appendix at the back there, right that we went over at the tail end, and it is simplistically hard. And it is something I've tried to model, uh, not only in the way that I do faith since reading this book, but in just the way that I do conversations, it has really helped me uh, oftentimes see things from a different lens. And there have been a lot of things that have come into contact of my life lately that have done that, that have reframed the way that I see the world and it is uncomfortable, and I think that it is true. I think that I meet God there, and I think that I'm changing in ways that I wouldn't have thought prior. And so I hope that you got as much out of today's conversation as I did. A very special thank you to Derek Myers for your music for today's episode. You'll find links to all of his stuff in the show notes, as well as everything that David and I spoke about. I cannot wait for next week. I'm going to have a conversation about Henry Nouwen, And that is fantastic. I'm excited for that. Very excited. I hope that you realize how beloved you are. Be blessed. We'll talk to you next week.